You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Well, this is the famous graveyard shift. Um, So do your best to stay awake and uh, we'll see how we get, get through this. I love Brother Thomas's comment when he said in Phanerosis, the deity, which is God, delights in stimulating the intellect of his creatures. He therefore reveals himself to them mysteriously. And God who made us knows that we have very capable brains of actually seeing, learning, visualizing, putting together and reasoning. And God said, look, I want to make you always be thinking about the scriptures, always growing in the scriptures, always learning something new, always expanding your mind. He didn't just give us 24 points and say, memorize those and you'll be okay. God keeps blowing our minds away by giving us more and more things in the depths of his word. And so God conceals spiritual gems, sometimes very deeply. And we have to dig them out, polish them up and find them. And and the prayer of Jabez is like that. Now, I think it's important to talk about Jabez because in the Pentecostal communities, Jabez is the hero of the prosperity gospel preachers. Here's a man that asked for more and God gave him more. So they say to them, well, you donate to the church and God will give you more. And they use Jabez as one of their prime candidates for the prosperity gospel. But Brother Thomas got it right. There are hidden things here in the record which we need to unearth. And I apologize to the young man that had to read this because I know it's not easy. But I want to show you that these names are not here by random. There are names here that are vitally important. Okay, now when we come to the chronicle records, we have lots of names and... I know many families, so let's just skip that one and read something else. But the Chronicles record is written by God. You've got to say this is divinely inspired. And inside those genealogies, there are hidden gems and missing links that pull together other parts of Scripture. For example, without the first of Chronicles chapter 9, verse 20, you would not know that it was Phineas, the son of Eliezer, that took the sons of Korah in hand and made them doorkeepers. You wouldn't know that without the Chronicles record. And here's one that I really would suggest you follow up. In chapter 3 of Chronicles, you is a fourth son of Josiah who goes missing. And I've got a whole story about that fourth son of Josiah who goes missing. Because he never sat on the throne, but he goes missing. So, you know, there are things in Chronicles that invite you to explore. And when you find the connections and you actually see, by comparing what Ezekiel said about that fourth son, you actually get some terrific things that you can actually draw out of the record. So I'm just giving you those as a bit of things to warm you up, that this is, the Chronicles is not the boring book it seems to be. So, the book of Chronicles, let's talk about the book of Chronicles. It was written at the time of the Babylonian captivity, probably by Ezra or Nehemiah. The proof of that, of the timing of the writing, is that we have all the kings of Judah included in the book of Chronicles. So it actually tells you it was written after, the, after they were defeated by the Babylonians and before they returned. When we come to the, what the Chronicles actually are, the Hebrew name is quite simple. It means the things left out. So we now have another lot of records added to the book of Kings and the book of Samuel, which tell us about a number of things that are not in those records. Yes, you have some same events, but you also have a lot of extra information that comes from Chronicles. <coughs> Lots of names, and that's what turns us off, is all the names. But these names are only a small sample of the millions of names that must have existed down through the history of the tribes of Israel. The ones that are here are here for a reason. 
And I'm going to show you that as we go through this record today. Now, the two books of Chronicles are focused on the kings of Judah and on the people of Judah, not on the northern tribes and very few mentions of northern kings unless they impact on the southern kings. So in the books of Chronicles, you're dealing with the kings of Judah primarily. First of Chronicles chapter 4 is a genealogy, but it's nothing like the ones you got used to in Genesis where, you know, he had a son and then he died, and he had a son and he died, and, and you get that linear genealogy. This, the, the genealogies here are very selective. There are generations missed out. And you get following through sometimes just one part of a family. So when you come to Chronicles, they are thematic lineages rather than linear ones. It also explains in Chronicles why certain families ended up in certain places and why they did certain things. And it's inside that context that you get Jabez mentioned in verse 9 and 10. But I want to talk about the family groups that are here in Chronicles and just show you this pattern of following families through rather than following whole tribes through because you couldn't get all the names in any one book. So some of the, the families here are connected to specific land inheritances and to specific occupations. So when you go back to Joshua 16, when the, when the territory of Judah was being carved up, so when Joshua gave Judah, you list all the cities that Joshua then nominated would be the inheritance of Judah. And there they are mentioned down, some of them there, in, on the right-hand side of that screen. What you then find is that these same people are mentioned in the Chronicles, in either chapter 4 or chapter 2. So these are the heads of the families. At the time when Joshua gave the inheritance to Judah, these people were the heads of the family at that particular point of time. So a section said, oh, you can have that township there and all the fields around about it for your inheritance. So they called the place Eshtemoah. And in many cases, they changed the Canaanite name to a Jewish name. But they were normally named after the head of the family that came to live in that place. And so you've got these families being described through the book of Chronicles. He relate to the cities that Joshua gave to the whole tribe of Judah. Of course, Bethlehem Ephratah, you know that one goes together, don't you? So what we've got here is connected names and cities. So the head of the family and the city that was given to them back in Joshua 16. And that's, that's an important little background. Look at chapter 4. You get the occupations coming into it. Chapter 4, verse 14. And you read about these guys. I won't go through all the names. The father of the valley of Karashim, for they were craftsmen. So these, this particular village or this particular area in Judah specialised in being craftsmen. In verse 20, you've got the makers of fine linen. Um, where is it? Oh, verse 21. The house of them that wrought fine linen. <laughs> so this particular family specialised in making clothes. Then you get in verse 23, you've got a family of potters. <laughs> and it's worth just noting that what we're being traced here is the particular character of the different areas and the specialisation that they ended up with. Now, they were all subsistence farmers, but inside the towns, there were specialisations of craft. So you've got potters there. Um, you've got, verse 39, you've got those who were shepherds. And in chapter 2, verse 55, you've got those who were scribes. So one thing about Chronicles in this particular early part is that you're actually getting designation descriptions of areas by trade. And that's quite interesting when you think about that. So they are connected. But what is important is when they took over these Canaanite cities, they changed the Canaanite name to the head of the family. So Luz became Bethel, or the house of God, which was Jacob had named it. Kirjath Arba became Hebron. Um, in many cases, they actually adopted the name of the person. So you've got, in chapter 4, verse 7, Esh, um, 
4 verse 7. 4 verse 8. Gidor. Oh, there, I've got a wrong chapter in there somewhere. 18, is it? Gidor, yeah. Soko and some of those, yeah. 4 verse 18, that's a mistake. It should be verse 18 for Gidor. Eshtemoa is somewhere there as well in verse 17. That's very bad typing, isn't it? So, you know, you've got these names. Zenoah in verse 18. Ephratar in chapter 4 and verse 4. And, and what you get going through this record is... The, the family heads at the time of Joshua, that's the important point, at the time of Joshua, renamed the cities of the Canaanites after their own names. And that's something that you find comes through in this record. What we've got here is only part of the overall allocation of Judah. In Chronicles chapter 1 to 4, there's a very big focus around the area of Bethlehem. In chapter 3, you have all the kings of Israel, which of course came from David, from Bethlehem. The kingly family occupies chapter 3. But the rest of it around the first four chapters has a lot to do with Bethlehem area at the time of the Babylonian captivity. So just a bit of background is reading Chronicles, not so much with disdain at the names we have to wade through, but saying, why are these names here? And, and this is important to understand that a lot of the villages or the towns were named after the heads of the family at the time of Joshua. Okay, so... Just keep that in mind as we now come to think about the prayer of Jabez. What is also necessary with Jabez is to establish the time frame. Now you'll read in, in Christadelphian literature, um, if you're crazy enough to listen to my brother, um, different to what I'm about to say. But some people believe that Jabez lived in David's time. I don't think so at all. I want to suggest to you that Jabez lived in the days of Joshua, around the time of Joshua 16 to 18. And I'll tell you why. The fact that he lived in the latter part of Joshua's life would indicate to me that a city called Jabez was never mentioned in Joshua 16, but here in Chronicles. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 55. The families of the scribes dwelled at Jabez, and of course that included the Kenites, and I'll say more about that later on. But there's now a city, when you get to Chronicles, there's now a city called Jabez that was not mentioned back in Joshua 16 and, and we find that a sister city has been assigned that name so that's an important thing about the timing and right in the middle of this chronology of, 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 the, of the tribe of Judah or part of the tribe of Judah because it's only a very small part of it we got mentioned here and right in the midst of all those names and about all the occupations that they took up you have this little thing about Jabez so let's look at the reasons for our timing now, one thing we learn is that he got a bigger inheritance than he was first given. That would indicate that that could only be done at a time before the final inheritances were actually achieved. And they were achieved probably early in the time of the judges. There seems to be about 50 or 60 years before all the inheritances were finally distributed. So at a time when inheritances were not yet finalised, when borders could be changed or enlarged, I think it's the time that Jabez got his extra portion. Now look at the, con the connections you can trace in these chapters. I want to just show you some things about Chronicles and the connections you can make. For example, in chapter 4, verse 15, you have Caleb's sons. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So his sons are then listed. So that was at the time of Joshua, wasn't it? They got their inheritance at Hebron. You've got Aksar in chapter 2 and verse 49. She was the daughter of Caleb, who got her inheritance around the time of Joshua. And we have in chapter 4, verse 18, a very unique little comment which actually dates this to the time of Joshua. 
Because in chapter 4, verse 18, you've got grandsons of Pharaoh listed as inheriting. Now, where did they come from? They must have been in the mixed multitude that came out. Grandsons of Pharaoh are listed in chapter 4 and verse 18. You know, which Bithlau, the daughter of Pharaoh, which Mered took. So here are, here are children that came through the wilderness and they were grandsons of Pharaoh. So it's giving you the timing of all these people that inherited this ter territory around Bethlehem. So when you put those clues together, there's lots of reason to say this happened in the last years of Joshua's life. Because the grandsons of Pharaoh have got nothing to do with hundreds of years later, in the time of David. We're talking about a time when inheritances were still being given out. And you've got the grandsons of Pharaoh there. So a lot of things that actually help with the timing. Let me just show you that it took a long time for, for Israel to finally take their inheritance. I want you to come back to Joshua chapter 13. This is where Joshua starts to carve up the land. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting comment there in Joshua 13, verse 1, about Joshua. It says, Joshua was old and stricken in years. And Yahweh said to him, you are old and stricken in years, and there remaineth very much land to be possessed. Now, I want you to notice that. Joshua had led them on a campaign for seven years to overcome all armed resistance in the land of Canaan. Every tribe now needed to go in and wipe out the remaining Canaanites in their section. But they were very slack in doing so. Very slack in doing so. In some cases, there were cities like Salem and Giza that remained Canaanite strongholds down to the days of David and Solomon. And in the days of Solomon, the king of Egypt had to come up and wipe out the Canaanites of Giza because the Jews had not done it. In the days of Solomon, he had to do that. So they didn't destroy the Canaanites like they were told to do. They left the Canaanites there. Now, let's think about Joshua. Still much is to be conquered, all right? There remained very much land to be possessed, it says in Joshua 13, verse 1. And then we come to Joshua 23, verse 1 and 2. Remember God called him old and stricken when that was said in Joshua 13. We're now going to go about 35 years later to Joshua 23. And it says came to pass after a long time after that Yahweh had given rest unto Israel, so this is a long time after the seven years, from the enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. So we've now got a second occasion that Joshua's got to get up and say, please guys, get out there and take your inheritance. Go and clean up those Canaanites. And he's now much older again. I am old and stricken in age. I can't fight for you anymore. I'm 110. I can't do it. So here's Joshua pleading with them to go and finish off their inheritance. Now what does that tell us when it comes to timing? The land is not fully taken. Look what he says. I have divided you by lot the nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes. From Jordan with all the nations I've cut off to the great sea westward. So I've done all the hard work. This is your inheritance. You go in and you clean up your tribal area. God will expel them before you. And you shall possess, there's that possession of the land which God's promised to you. Be courageous and do it. Get on with it. But this is almost 40 years from when they went into the land. They still haven't done it. And Joshua's about to die and he's getting quite despairing about that. Now, think about this. The land was not yet properly inherited when Joshua died. How old would Joshua be? Well, let's just speculate on the age of Joshua. He led the battle against Amalek in Exodus 70 when they came out of Egypt. 
So he was capable of leading the army at, at, at that age. So let's say he was 20, 25. Next to this 33, he's described as a young man. Let's say he was 30, just, just to be on the safe side. He spent 40 years in the wilderness, seven years of conquest. So he's at least 77 by the time that he's finished defeating the Canaanite armies. And God says to him, you're already old and stricken. You know, some of us feel like that at 77, don't we, Bill? <laughs> um, but, you know, if God says you're old and stricken. He called him that. When we come to chapter 23, he's 110. And again, we're told that he's, he's very old and he can't do it anymore. So between the 77, when he actually appealed to them to go and finish it off, and now there's another 33 wasted years, which they haven't still done it. He gives them one last chance to do it. And there was a very, very gradual process of the taking of tribal areas going on and then dividing the family of God. So it took a long time, and that's my point. There's a long time before inheritances were finally settled. A long time. And in that time, you can actually increase an inheritance if God decides to do so. And that's what happens with Jabez. I think he was in this period of time. So there's the timing issue where... You can see that the sons of Pharaoh were involved. Aksar and Caleb are involved in the record. And you've got Jabez in the middle of it. The same time period. So it's pretty obvious that's when we're talking about. Okay, well, that's getting the background of the timing. Let's explore the suggestion about Jabez living in this time. That is in the last 40 years of Joshua's life. And I'm going to make a big call. And I'm going to ask you to just... Think about it before you completely reject it. I know some of you here will just say, no. <laughs> I suggest that Jabez is a son of Achan. Or perhaps a grandson or a nephew of Achan, the troubler of Israel. And that might be challenging at first to think about, but let's bear with me and hear what the evidence is. When you look at back in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, let's go back there. You're looking at a chronology of the tribe of Judah, but only a very, very small line of the tribe of Judah is involved. And it says at the end of verse 2, we're looking at the family of the Zorahites. Now, in verse 1, you've got the sons of Judah. Now, always bear in mind when you're with the word sons in the Hebrew, it means descendants, not always first sons. It means descendants. The descendants of Judah, Phares, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. Now, you know, of those, only Phares and Zorah were direct children of Judah and Tamar. So the other ones are descendants rather than um, direct sons. So you've got to remind when it says sons, these are the people that flowed from Judah through Tamar, through Phares, and through Zorah. So you've got the family concentration is the family of the Zorahites. It says at the end of verse 2. So just bear in mind, you've got that name Zorah. Above him, you've got the name um, Phares, and then you've got Judah. Just, just keep those names in mind. Okay, so we're dealing with the family of the Zorahites. Now, I'm not going to deal with verse 3 down to verse 8 because that's not, that particular theme is not relevant to what I'm going to say. You notice in that record of descendants of Judah, you have Carmi. He's not a direct son of Judah. He's a descendant of Judah. From Judah to Achan's sin was about 250 years. So from the time that Judah had children to the time of Achan's sin was about 250 years. And there are four generations, Judah, Phares, 
Zora, Zabdi, Carmi, Achan. All right, so you've got a number of generations. When you put them together in the, the correct family order, I'll give it to you again. Judah, Zora, Zabdi, Carmi, Achan. Four generations before you get to Achan. And it covers about 250 years. Now, there could be generations missing. I, I can't verify that particularly. But, the, but it's actually telling you we're talking about the family of Judah and especially a man called Carmi, who was the father of Achan. All right, so this is what it's telling you. We're talking about the Zorahites. We're just limiting it down to part of Judah, part of Judah's sons. We're going down through Zorah. And we're going to talk about Carmi. Okay. So remember, four generations over 250 years. Now let's go back to Joshua 7 and look at the story of the sin of Achan. In Joshua 7, you know, we know the story about Achan. He was the city of Jericho and everything in it was devoted to God. It had to be burnt with fire. You could not take anything from Jericho. No one would be allowed to stay alive. So what happened then was that he stole from God the goodly Babylonish garment. Just remember that, a goodly Babylonish garment and a wedge of gold. So he's actually very much interested in money and Babylonish items. Just, just tuck that away. Anyway, it comes the time for the Inquisition. We come to verse 17 of Joshua chapter 7. So, verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning, brought up Israel by their tribes. So he lines up all the heads of the tribes, and the divine thing says, it's in Judah. So then you line up the family of Judah, the family of the Zorahites, right? When you read Zahites and Zorahites, it's the same name in the Hebrew. The family of Zorah is taken. The family of the family of Zorah was taken, and Zabdi was taken. And then you go down into the family, and they bought a house, Achan, the son of Carmi. So you've gone down from Judah, through Zorah, Zabdi, Carmi, and we hit on Achan. All right, so this is how God is now bringing it right down through the family in those generations. And those are the names you've got back in Chronicles. So it's telling you, this is connected to Chronicles. This is explaining what happened after. Now, and Joshua said to Achan in verse 19, my son... Give, I pray, thee glory to the, and listen to this great title, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and make confession. So that was what he was required to do. So, you know, Yahweh said, God said, that give glory to the God of Israel. So, you think about that. Even though he was pointed out by God as being the criminal, he was still required to make a confession. That's interesting, isn't it? And with God, confession is always critical, even if the consequences are dire. And they certainly were in Achan's case. God still required a confession. And he made a wonderful confession. Look what he said. And Achan, in verse 20, answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. And I saw, look at it, it goes to verse 21, I saw and I took and I hid, and you know, the old principle of how sin works out is right there in that verse. But Achan confessed, but he actually said the same word as Joshua, I have offended the God of Israel. And just note that, tuck it away. So, here we are at the stoning of Achan. Come to verse 22, back in Joshua chapter 7. Just, just sort of stay there, sorry, I just lost the place. We come down to Joshua 7 and verse 22. Now, I want you to notice carefully, this is a case of careful Bible reading. 
In Joshua 7.22, it tells us that his family were, they found it in, in his tent. They took them out, laid it out. And then it says down in verse uh, 24, Joshua and Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, or Zorah. So there's that idea of the descendant. He's actually a great grandson of Zorah, but he's a descendant of Zorah. He's the son of Carmi, but it's that you get that, you've got to always translate sons as descendants. Took the, the grand or the great grandson of Zorah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, his sheep, his tent, and everything that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. So the stoning was done in the place called the Valley of Achor. And he troubled Israel. And notice that. Why have you troubled us? You are the troubler of Israel. You've caused so much destruction. All the men that died at Ai had left widows and children because of this sin. Israel now was trembling before the Canaanites because of this sin. You've troubled Israel. So they stoned him and they burned him with fire. And as I said, God burns people with fire after they've been stoned who are immoral or who caused great damage to the nation. And they did that and put a great heap of stones under this day and God's anger was turned away. But the place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. So here is the stoning of Achan. But just notice who's missing from the list in verse 24. It does not say anything about his wife. So why is she not there? Is that just assumed? Or was she ignorant of the crime? Well, the children certainly weren't because they were stoned with their father. God does not kill children for the sins of their father. They had been complicit with their father. They'd covered it up. And in God's eyes, covering up is just as bad as committing it. So they were, not, they were stoned. They were not spared. But perhaps the wife of Achan was expecting a child soon. And for the sake of the unborn child, she was spared. In God's law, God consistently protected the unborn child. You can check that through the law of Moses. Or maybe Achan had a sister or a married daughter who was not involved and who was about to give birth, who would deliver a newborn child into a family that was in total and utter disgrace in the nation, a family in great sorrow because so many of the relations had died. And if it was Achan's wife who was spared, you can imagine how she felt. Her husband's gone, her children are gone, her tent's gone. All she's got is this baby. You think about that. Their family sin had cost so many other people's fathers, sons and brothers. And the nation was in great fear at this stage. Now there are 40 years from the stoning of Achan to the death of Joshua. As I said, during that time, individual heritages were being divided up as more and more territory was conquered. If Jabez was born just after the, the AI incident and the stoning of Achan, he would have time to grow up in that next 40 years to a stage where, say, he's 20, 25, and he looks at the inheritance that his disgraced family has been given, the Valley of Achor, a miserable place. And he looks at it and he says, that's all we've got and that's all we deserve. But he went to God and said, look, while inheritances are still being divided up, I would like a little more. And you think about that. He went and he said to God, I know we're in disgrace. I know my family have let down the nation. But please, could I have a better piece of Abraham's land than what we've been given? Who would want to live in the Valley of Achor with a heap of stones to remind you of what that, what that was all about? So he asked about it. So let's talk about Jabez. We'll come back to 1 Chronicles chapter 4. And just see how that fits in with the record of the sin of Achan. 
Reverse the Chronicles chapter 4. We've only got two verses on Jabez, but we know an awful lot from those verses. Number one, he was named by his mother. Now, that's unusual in Israel. Remember how unusual it was. When John the Baptist was born, his father could not talk. And they had to get him to write on a chalkboard or something to say his name is John, because it was the father's prerogative to name the child. Joseph very obediently named Jesus according as God had revealed that name should be. But Joseph did the naming, not Mary. And so you find that it was the father's prerogative to name a child. But if there's no father, the mother's got to do it. So he was named by his mother. So there's an unusual clue. Would seem his father's already dead. He was born at a time of great sadness and sorrow. His mother called him Jabez, which means to sorrow, because I bore him with sorrow. The Hebrew has, I've borne him as a sorrowful one. So this was more than the pain associated with childbirth. This was a time for the mother of great grief and sadness. I bore him at a time of incredible sorrow in my life. But Jabez grew up to be more honourable than his brethren. The record says that he was more honourable than his brethren. It's a remarkable commendation, isn't it? His siblings had been stoned with their father. So he's more honourable than his relatives who had been judged and condemned. And he was very sensitive about committing sin. He said, you would keep me from the evil. He doesn't want to commit sin like the family have been doing. He eschewed evil. He got an inheritance that was inferior and he wanted a better one. And he asked for an enlarging of his borders. He says, enlarge my coast. Widen the borders you've given me to something better than what we've got. And you know those words, enlarging the borders, are taken directly from Exodus 34, 24, where God said to Israel, you keep my feast and I will enlarge your borders. So he picked up from Exodus 34, 24, those words. So this is a very spiritual prayer that he makes from somebody who was born in sorrow, named by his mother, and, and we know a lot about him in this aspect. So here is, sorry, I keep forgetting to do this. Story of Jabez, named by his mother, his father was dead. He was born at the time of great sorrow. He grew up to be more honourable than his brothers and sisters, very conscious of avoiding evil. He'd seen the damage that had been done. He desired a better inheritance than he'd received. He prayed to God for a larger inheritance, and God gave him his request. And all of a sudden, a city we'd never heard of before comes up in Chronicles, the city of Jabez. Isn't that interesting? At a time when all of those cities got their names from the father of the tribe that inherited that particular part. We don't know what city that might have been before, but now we've got a city called Jabez. And it becomes, becomes to be a city of the Kenites who go and live there as well. Now, the Kenites are the family of the house of Jethro, who joined Moses when they came out of the wilderness and, and went with Joshua into the land. Later, they become the, they called the Rechabites. So you can trace them through the scriptures as well. But they actually decided that the place they wanted to be was in the city of Jabez. After the time of Jehu, they said, we've got to get out of cities and live in tents. But up until that time, they lived in Jabez. So we've now got a city that is noted for, other, for people who were not originally Jews coming into the covenant, joining Jabez in his new inheritance in this city. So a remarkable thing about Jabez that we've actually learned. Let's look at his prayer, verse 9 and 10. And this is a, is a wonderful prayer. And let's just summarise what it says. Oh, sorry, that's about the, the scribes of Jabez. We won't go to that too much. The prayer of Jabez. Well, it says in verse 10, 
he called on the God of Israel. Where did he get that from? Joshua 7. Give glory to the God of Israel, said Joshua. Yes, I have transgressed against the God of Israel, said Achan. This Jabez picks that up. He called on the God of Israel. Oh, you would bless me indeed. His father had been cursed. Enlarge my coast. I want more than what we've got. Multiply it. And that word multiply is the word that God uses in the promises to Abraham. I will multiply thy seed. Same Hebrew word. I want to multiply what I've already got. Because it's not very good. Keep me from evil. You know, Jesus would almost quote these words verbatim in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6 verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can't get a higher accolade than when Jesus quotes you into the Lord's Prayer. You know, this man's a very spiritual thinker. But it may not grieve me. And that means that I don't want to be worried or in pain or angry. I don't want to sin like my father did. I don't want to be a cause of grief to the nation like Achan was. I don't want to be upset and grieved by the things that I do. So lead me away from evil, he says. I want a share of Abraham's land. I want a better share. I want a better place in this land. I want to be closer to Bethlehem. And God gave them an inheritance from the Valley of Achor to Bethlehem. And in between, a place called Jabez. This was not a prayer about selfish prosperity, like the Pentecostals will teach you. It's not about getting rich in this life. It's about getting closer to the action in Abraham's land. He wanted to be closer to Bethlehem, to the center of the land as it was in those times. He didn't want to be right over in the Valley of Achor, which is right down near the Dead Sea, in pretty rough and hostile country. And God gave him that. God was very pleased with his prayer. And God does not hold children accountable for the sins of their fathers. And he followed a pattern of faithful Israelites who asked for an inheritance and were blessed by God. He saw the daughters of Zelophehad that God gave them an inheritance because they asked and pressed to get it. You look at Caleb and Axar and, and, and all of those that wanted more and got it. God always blessed those who had a great desire to inherit Abraham's land. And brethren and sisters, we have an inheritance. It's the hope of Israel. We have the promises made unto the fathers. We have Zion set before us as the hope and the center of our aspirations. We have the seed of Abraham ruling over the earth at peace. The house of prayer established in Zion. God being revealed to the world through Jesus, the King of the Jews. We have an Israelite hope. We have an inheritance in our faith of the hope of Israel. It's more than us yet just getting eternal life. You know, we can be selfish about wanting eternal life because we get old and die. But really, if we have the hope of being there to glorify God, to share with Lord Jesus Christ his rule over the earth, and to bring the world to perfection, to see many more sons come to glory at the end of the millennium, to work with the angels for a thousand years, what a wonderful hope we have. What a positive hope that is, to be part of God's purpose with this earth. Now, that's why it says in Ephesians about our inheritance. We have attained an inheritance. The spirit gifts were a down payment on the glorious gifts when we have all the gifts in the kingdom. He that overcometh, said Jesus, will inherit all things. And here's a man that was born in sorrow, went to his God when he grew up and prayed for a better inheritance than he'd actually got. And God gave it to him because he wanted to achieve it with Abraham. And he prayed to God in the terms of exactly where his family had gone wrong in the past. 
Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Valley of Acor before we conclude. The Valley of Acor is pictured this way today, and it's very interesting. You've got a big pile of stones in that particular picture. Um, but the Valley of Acor is over near the Dead Sea. It's not a very nice place. Uh, it's the valley in which they buried Achan, and I believe this is where they originally were given, that you're going to have to live with these pile of stones, because you've got to be reminded of what your family did. And it was a pretty barren, hostile part of the land. So there it is, right over here, the Valley of Acor, over there. You know, Bethlehem is right down here. Now, we don't know exactly where Jabez was, but I believe it was somewhere in between the two. But it was certainly a much better place than the Valley of Acor. So when you look at that map, you see that this is where, Achor, where, where the inheritance first was. But it has a glorious future. I want you to come to Hosea chapter 2 and verse 15. You know, a place of shame and ignominy for that family has got a glorious future in the plan and purpose of God. So Hosea chapter 2 and verse 15. And he's talking about bringing back Israel to the land. Verse 14, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, the wilderness of the people, says Ezekiel, taking her through all the nations of Europe that oppose their, their progress. And I will speak comfortably, as the margin has, to her heart. And this is the work of Elijah and the saints, going out to, to bring back all the tribes of Israel from all over the world, fighting their way through resistant nations, going through the wilderness of the people, coming to the land. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there is in the days of the youth, in the days when she came out of the land of Egypt. So that when Israel, when the Jews come back to the land, their particular journey, whether they come through Egypt or Syria, their journey is going to take them, before they go up to Jerusalem, they're going to go through the Valley of Achor. It's the doorway that God will make them go through as they come to his land. And it will be a valley of hope. You think about this, as they come there and, and they march through, as they come through in, in obviously companies, as the saints bring them through, they'll come to the Valley of Achor to learn a big lesson. They have to be shamed about rejecting their Messiah. That's one big lesson. But you imagine an immortal Jabez meeting them as they come to the Valley of Achor and telling them, you can recover from the sins of your fathers. You can find mercy from the God of Israel if you only confess that you've actually made a big mistake in rejecting the Messiah. Confess and give glory to the God of Israel. And by the way, you Jews have to learn not to slust after Babylonish garments and silver and gold, which has always been the stumbling block for the Jews, hasn't it? You've got to reject those things. They're devoted to destruction. And Jabez will be there perhaps to tell them about that as they come through this valley, the, the door to the land for them. Now come to that verse in Isaiah that I mentioned that I wanted to come to as we conclude this series. Isaiah 65 and verse 9 and 10. And again it's talking about how God will restore the nation of Israel in the kingdom. And then he says in verse 9, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and cut and out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains. And mine elect shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there and Sharon shall be a field of flocks and the valley of Achor a place for the, for the herds to lie down in and for my people that have sought me you know that's interesting isn't it an inheritor of my mountains 
and my, my elect shall inherit it. You know, that's a picture of pastoral peace and the tranquility of the kingdom, of herds peacefully grazing in the valley of Achor, which once was a place of cursing. Past the troubles, past the, the, the terrible things that once happened there, this valley that was to be the door of entrance is going to become the wonderful place that will be for the children of Israel to come. So there it is, the Valley of Achor for a door of hope, that's Hosea. Sorry about that, I got way ahead of myself. And there it is again, it will be a place of flocks lying down. So brethren and sisters, there's so many themes about inheritance that go through the Bible. We've seen it with the Jubilee year. We've seen it with the daughters of Zelophehad. We've seen it with Jephthah and his daughter. We've seen it with Jeremiah and Baruch. And now we see it with Jabez. All of them wanted to have a share of Abraham's land. God says, my elect shall inherit it. Let's emulate their spirit and their desire to be part of the future with God. And let's finish with the words of Psalm 37. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.